the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, the, the living waters change everything. And we're in a series at looking at just some of the things that are affected by the gospel. And in the last two weeks, we looked at Jesus coming to people, challenging them, no matter the, the, the deepest insider or the furthest outsider, challenging them simply to believe and knowing for them in their belief, in their trust in him, everything Everything would change. And we're going to be looking in the coming weeks at, at, at the gospel's effects on society and the world, on justice, on the, on the church itself. But we're going to spend a couple of weeks on its effects on the way we live our daily lives, the stuff of our daily lives and our sense of, uh, our sense of purpose in living our daily lives. And we're going to start with a peek back at Genesis, at those first three chapters that go such a long way to explaining so much about the way the world is, both in how it should be and how we know it should be, and on how it's broken and why it isn't quite that way, but still struggles to be. And so we're going to begin with focusing that lens of looking through the beginning of Genesis on the nature and the purpose of work. And I'm going to read from the end of chapter 1 of the book of Genesis and then uh, verses 2 through 17 of the second chapter. Listen to the word of God. Then God said... Let us make man in our image, after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heaven and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And then in chapter 2, And on the seventh day God finished his work that he had done and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy. Because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the heavens and the earth. When no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land. And there was no man to work the ground and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. And the tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. 
a river flowed out of Eden to, the, to water the garden. And there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where, the gold, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Bedelium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris which flows east of Assyria, and the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we seek to be changed by your word, knowing that it is the word of life for us. So as we consider your word, work by the power of your spirit. Guide my words, guide all of our hearts and minds as we stand before you. And listen, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Let me ask you a question. What is your dream life? What is your dream life? Thursday night, I had dinner down in Los Angeles with my wife and my daughter and one of our dearest and closest friends, virtually another daughter to us. And we went to a Oaxacan Mexican restaurant. And during the conversation, the food was amazing. And unlike you know, food you can f- I've found anywhere else, it was amazing food. And we had that conversation of the perfect bite. And, and it just got me thinking, really, about it, in a sense, more than being a perfect bite, just being a perfect moment of being together with the people I love most in my life, almost all of them. My two other kids are scattered to the wind, but for even just us to be together and and the fullness of that moment and feeling its perfection. What is your perfect life? What does it have in it? Is it about people in your life? Is it about possessions? Is it about having security or having health? Is it about being comfortable or, or entertained and energized? In, in that perfect life, what does a day look like? Uh, do you get up early or, or, or sleep in? Do you, is it quiet or is it just full of activity? Do you have responsibilities? Or do you have none? What's the, what's the perfect job for you? What's the perfect career? What's the perfect work that you have to do? And, and how do you feel about your work? People, I think all of us, we, we have ideals. And so I can just ask you that question, how is your life related to your ideals? How is, how is life living up to your ideals? 
And I imagine we're all along a spectrum about how we feel about our lives. And in particular, about that which we do, our work in our lives. And so this week, we'll, we'll glance back at our lives before the fall. And, and, and it's going to provide some vital information about God's intended perfect life. And, and we know the good news of the gospel is, the, is that the ideal of life that we were created for is coming back to us. And we're going to see how the gospel, the gospel gives work, what we do, and, and how we do it. It gives it purpose. It gives it parameters. And it gives it power. Purpose, parameters, and power. So let's, let's first look at how the gospel gives life vision. It gives it purpose for our work, for that which we do, both for work in general and for our particular work, whatever it may be. In general, we see in chapter 2, in Genesis 2, even before the, the fall, Adam and Eve work. They work in the garden. Work is part of what we are created to do. And depending on your relationship to whatever work you do, this may be a little bit surprising for you, but we'll come back to that. We see what that work is in the gardening. Gardening and all work really is simply this. You take what is, the things that God created, and you arrange them in order and beauty. Things, things that, things that, uh, things come out of our work that wouldn't before. Things like food, things like ways to help humans survive and thrive in our world. That's what we work for. Think of it, farming. Clearly, it's just arranging aspects of God's creation for fruitfulness. Farming is just that rearrangement. But even medicine and chemistry and biology, it's just reordering elements, understanding them and reordering them for our best purposes. Technology is the ordering of parts to make materials and information flow. Even, even writing sermons... I'm just finding words and ordering them to reflect God's word and impact in our lives. And we call all of this and so many other things work. There are a couple of quick implications to this, to this little picture in Genesis. The first is that all work is participating with God in this world. When he created, he brought order out of chaos. He does it in the hearts and minds of people in the process of healing and redemption. But he also does it in the material world. Our work is us joining in God's work. Also, one other implication is just this very simple notion that there is no such thing as menial work in God's eyes. I do a lot of cooking and cleaning at home. 
I'm, I'm one of the main cooks in our household and, and dishwashers and cleaners. And when I was getting degrees at these famous places, that's not the work I had in mind that I was preparing myself for. But I've, I've found in, in the working together with my wife and my family, I have a real sense of God's pleasure when I'm washing the dishes joyfully and gratefully for all that we've received and will receive again on clean and ordered dishes. I'm doing exactly what God has called me to be doing in that moment with love and gratitude for Him, for my family, for all that He's given us and all the ways He sustains us day by day. There is no such thing as menial work or workers in God's eyes. And for each of us, it means that there's a difference between the work that we do simply for ourselves and for our benefit and the work that we do for a greater purpose with a real vision and purpose that God gives it. We can do work for God and for others, for the betterment of our world. And it changes the measure, it changes the attitude and everything about us going about that work. Whose glory are you in it for? Uh, A couple of years ago, when the pandemic hit, right in the middle of the school year, All of education nationally and around the world was under a great deal of stress. Many of you are in education and you know what that moment was like. And and that moment of, of pressure on figuring out how to do education as as in a whole new way, as quickly as you could, including before the next fall when the kids wondering whether the kids were going to be back in the classroom. My wife, Veronica, was the director of the technology department of the Pittsburgh Public Schools, and all of a sudden she was working at that from home, in the living room. We set her up with four screens across a big table and her headphones on, but mostly she used the speaker, and we just all had to be really quiet. And they had... They had to make the decisions in in her meetings so quickly about how they could be prepared in the next few weeks for all the different eventualities. Maybe kids can go back to the school buildings. They they didn't know. Or, Or if they can, they could only have half the kids in the school building at the time and the rest are at home. Or and. All of it meant that they had to build a whole new infrastructure of education in a few weeks. And everyone was under a great deal of pressure as they would meet. But what struck me is I sometimes stopped to listen into those meetings in the living room. Was It was so very clear who is in it for themselves and for their own glory and comfort and who's in it for the kids in the district, the, the many different kids. And the pressure makes it clear who doesn't want to take the blame and who's not, and who's not worrying about that but only about the kids. It it, it seemed like it was night and day. And here's the thing. Faith will affect 
the way you do your work. Businesses are always going to need to make money. But that doesn't have to be their only and prime, their prime, their only primary function. They can serve not just the owner's bottom line, but employer, employees and customers can win too. Even the environment and, and communities can be taken into account and cared for. I know that that's asking a lot. It's hard to do. It's working creatively so that all can benefit. But it can be done. Working creatively for the betterment of all comes right out of these chapters of Genesis. That's working for the glory of God. And that's working with a purpose. That gets to the second part. There are parameters to work. Tim Keller calls them guardrails. And it made me think of guardrails on the sides of roads. Guardrails, usually you see them on freeways with lots of traffic going both directions. Or they're on the edges of cliffs and curves. Either way, if the car would cross those boundaries, there's going to be horrible consequences. From the beginning of the Garden of Eden, God gave Adam and Eve a parameter. One guardrail. Don't eat of the fruit of that tree. In this world and throughout Scripture, there are moral absolutes. Don't break promises. Don't take bribes. Don't use false weights and measures and cheat in business. And when things are right, there is trust between people. We live in a world where trust between people and, and for institutions is, is rapidly eroding. And there are a lot of reasons why, why people have lost trust in businesses and politics and law enforcement and even in church. Businesses and their leaders do anything for the bottom line and leave everyone else out. Politicians so, so, so often seem to have a backstory or simply are seeking power or an ego. And churches are in the news more for scandals and power plays than they are for loving their neighbors. Who do we trust in our world anymore? And the whole nature of ethics and morality has changed its grounding, moving from a sense of universal truth to an individual ethic of what's right for me. And we measure things now by a cost-benefit analysis for each individual. Richard Mao is a theologian who saw this, and he said, the only way we're going to have a culture in which we ever begin to get back trust again is if you had a cadre of people out there who believe some things have to be done just because they're right and it doesn't matter, the prophet. Tim Keller gave an example of a Christian car dealer he knew. He knew, he knew the practice of haggling over prices for each car 
preyed upon the most vulnerable, upon, the, upon certain segments of society. And he thought that simply was wrong. And so he changed his car dealership to having a nearly fixed price with very little wiggle room. And that clearly meant that there would be less profit for him. But someone asked him if he might, in the long run, through good public relations, if that would might lead to a better bottom line, whether there'd be a benefit in the long run. But the car dealer's response was, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. He wasn't going to research whether it would be better for profit in the long run. He was going to do it just because it was the right thing to do. Christians, we have two parameters for what we do, for our work. The first is truth. This is the honesty. This is the righteousness. It means not failing in our promises, not taking bribes or cheating the measures. That's just truth. But there's a second parameter as well, and that is compassion. Think of the boss in business, the good one. Who doesn't, who doesn't claim all the credit from his employees when they accomplish something wonderful. And who doesn't put all the blame on them when something doesn't work out. But he takes the blame on, them, on himself. That is a compassionate boss. And that's exactly what Jesus did. Jesus gave all the credit for his good work to us and he took all our blame upon himself we should have that sort of compassion in our work that's that's the parameters for work but finally the gospel gives us the power to accomplish our work. The power comes from our perspective on work. On the one hand, we were created for work. And it stuns many to realize that we, that we were working before the fall. It's built into creation. We are meant to work. We are meant to do things. And there's meaning and there's purpose and there's fruitfulness in our work and it will, in which we will find Nowhere else. And that, that runs against the notion of, of so many in our world for whom work is a negative experience, a negative thing, that we just we have to do it because we have to survive and, and we want to make money so that we can do what we really want to do with the rest of our lives, with the rest of our time. No. We are meant to work and to find meaning in it. On the other hand, the chapter after we read this one tells us that work will become frustrating. And it has become frustrating. The ground doesn't bear fruit so easily for us anymore, but thorns and thistles instead. We're going to experience frustration in our work in a fallen world. You can expect that and not be surprised. So many live as if we're stuck between the need to work and the frustration in doing it. 
that is the reality in some regard for all of us in our work. It is a universal experience. But there's a resource in this passage. It's very simply this. God worked for six days and on the seventh day he rested. It's not just that we need our rest so that we can work more. It's that work is not all there is. We need to work to have a meaningful life. But work is not our meaning. You know, you know some who seek to find all their meaning in their work. That's their whole identity. But while it is a significant part of our lives, it is not the ultimate source of meaning and value. That's just a, a setup for the frustration of the thorns and the thistles. We cannot and we should not derive value simply from our productivity. That is an idol, and it's a particularly powerful idol for many in America, particularly Protestant America, the idol of productivity and measuring all of our value in it. Now, COVID gave many of us a perspective on this. For many, it was an incredibly frustrating, frustrating time of work, of either not having work or of having to do it and it putting you in, in discomfort and even danger or being, of work being so heightened that there's no chance for rest, not even a chance for perspective. You just became so overwhelmed. But this, this is where our strength for work comes. Even in all of its frustration, God gives us a spiritual ultimate rest as our strength to face every day and every part of our work. God worked for six days and then he rested. On the cross, <clears throat> Jesus proclaimed, it is finished. His work of accomplishing salvation, of redemption, of grace and meaning poured out on us. That work, his work, is finished. Now, where we begin this story in a garden, this story will end in a new heaven and a new earth. The thorns and the thistles, every tear and frustration, at work and everywhere else, it will all be wiped away. And everything now becomes, in Paul's terms, a slight momentary affliction compared to the weight of glory that awaits us. That is our strength for work today, even when it's hardest. God created us for work. But the gospel returns all of our work to, with purpose and with parameters and the power to do it. How do you feel about your life? How about what you do in your life, your particular work? Bring the gospel to it. And you will find purpose and vision. 
You will have perspective and parameters. And you will have strength and energy for everything you do. As you do it for the glory of God and the love of others. Let's pray. God, work work can be so hard and so frustrating for so many of us. Or for others of us, it can be what we seek to find our whole identity in. But Lord, we know that work is very simply a gift of creation. That you have given us a place for work in our lives. And though we live in a fallen world, we, we find our joy in working for your glory and for the love of others. God, help give us always perspective on our work and strength to do, to do it. Help us to live in the parameters of righteousness and compassion. And Lord, Lord, give us vision and purpose in all of it. Lord, we are so glad for that work that you have given each one of us. As, as different and varied as it is for all of us, Lord, thank you. And Lord, it's in gratitude that we come to respond, to, to reaffirm our, our commitment, our joy in you. And we give you ourselves, our very lives, even as we in a moment pass our tithes and offerings and stand and sing the doxology. Lord, all of it is a response of gratitude for your word and for your call to work in our lives. Thank you, Lord. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.